actually, two for the price of one. One will be um, presenting shortly before Reverend Watkins, and um, then Reverend Watkins will step up and do his presentation. We'll have, or his first part of his presentation, then we'll do a 15-minute coffee, which will probably be 20 minutes. <laughs> and then uh, we'll come back in here and we'll finish off the presentation and then do a question and answer period as well. So I'd like to start off the evening with prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that we could gather here this evening for this special presentation. We thank you that you sent your Holy Spirit to work in our hearts, that we have the desire to know you, to love you, and, live, and to live your li our lives in your service. Your son Jesus has paid for all our sins and has paid the debt of sin on our behalf. For this reason, we are thankful and desire to share this with the people that we meet so that they too can see the rich blessings we graciously received. We may not always have the courage to reach out, but may your spirit work in our hearts that we may overcome this challenge and be able to spread your holy name to all we meet. We are thankful that you provide people in our lives to help encourage us when we need it by your word and spirit. Bless this evening, give our speakers all they need to present. Bless us all that we may be uplifted and encouraged to do the work that we are called to do in your service. Allow your spirit to work in, a, in all of us and allow our faith to be strengthened daily. All this we ask in your son's name, amen. I'd like to read a portion of the Bible before we start. Um, I'd like to read the section from Matthew 28, verse 16 to the end. It can be found on page 835 this pew Bible. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw, they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This Bible text is known as the Great Commission. Jesus gave the command to his disciples to make disciples of all nations, teaching them about God. How do we do this? How does the world get to know Christ? Through the, free, through the teaching of his word primarily. But who does this teaching? Often we leave this to ministers and missionaries, gifted speakers and the likes. But what about us everyday people, people that work in office buildings or in construction sites or even go to school and universities? Is that our responsibility to evangelize? The whole mission committee here in Emmanuel, and I'm sure other churches have similar committees, have a mandate to provide opportunities for the congregation to be involved in evangelism within and outside of our church community. That is why we are here tonight. We believe that evangelism is for everyone. It's everyone's responsibility. You don't have to be an elegant speaker or a professionally trained speaker to talk to people. God calls us to be light. Often, a little light in someone's life can lead them to knowing God and receiving salvation. Sharing the hope of salvation can be something as simple as giving a person a Bible. We hope that after tonight, we all shine a little brighter in this dark world. 
The Home Mission Committee has been looking into ways of training our congregation in um, different ways of evangelism. One way we hope to do this is by offering a training session in about two weeks' time on March 15th for an evangelism program that introduces people to what Christianity is all about, to ask people, what's the best news you have ever heard? If you are from an, a different church other than this one and are also interested in this program, please feel free to talk to me or to our speaker who I'll introduce briefly. Um, this program is called Christianity Explored. Our speaker here is the regional director located in the Edmonton area. Um, feel free to chat with him if you have an opportunity at coffee, um, if you have any questions. So please, I'd like to welcome Mr. John Kivel. It's nice to get the applause before I speak, because afterwards, you never know. I, uh, I actually had a prepared a PowerPoint presentation, but there was, must be something wrong with the jump drive, and uh, so unfortunately, we won't have that. And I spent literally minutes preparing it. But uh, I think of a verse uh, from the Old Testament that, that touches my heart. And I think it refers not only to that period then, but this period now. And it's Judges uh, chapter 2, verse 10. It said, after that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. And you know, I almost sense that we're in that sort of time again. I found out I'm too old to be a baby boomer, but uh, any of us who are baby boomers here, Often, unfortunately, our kids, uh, we grew up going to church, went to Sunday school every week, uh, but this new generation doesn't have that. They don't have any Christian memory at all. So um, I want to tell you a little bit about Christianity Explored. Some of you may know it, but it's a seven-week course, an evangelism slash outreach slash discipleship course, and it focuses on Jesus as revealed in the Gospel of Mark. If you were to ask uh, God, for instance, what's the best way to tell somebody about Christ? Uh, he might say, well, you could start with the books I've given you about him. And that's the Gospels. And that's what Christianity Explored does. It lets the Gospel tell the Gospel. Uh, it's designed uh, to use what I think is a very good means of evangelism, and that is relationship evangelism. People inviting people just to come and hear the story of Jesus. Uh, you know, you say to somebody, are you interested what the what Christianity is all about? Come on, we're going to have a course in our church, and uh, just come on and check it out. A typical evening uh, involves food, whether it's a supper or a dessert and coffee, and then a teaching video, and then a small group discussion. And it's, to me, the... Uh, I like to refer to it as evangelism for those without the gift of evangelism which is me. But it presents the Jesus story from three perspectives, his identity, his mission, and his call. His identity, who is he? His mission, why did he come? And his call, what does it mean to follow him? And a call to follow him. A few verses, if I can just uh, quote from Mark chapter 8, cover all three. Identity, who is he? Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. 
And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. So Peter got his identity. But then his mission, why did he come? Continuing in, the, in Mark 8, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. Well, Peter got his identity, but he didn't yet understand his mission and his call. What does it mean to follow him? Again, if anyone could after, come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? So as I say, Christianity is a seven-week course, and um, it involves just time for people to hear the gospel. The Lord can, uh, can change a heart in an instant, but... Uh, these days, I think we find that it takes a little bit of a relationship to develop. It takes uh, perhaps some time uh, reading, getting into the Word. That's the wonderful thing about Christianity Explored. By the end of that course, any guest will have read and studied and answered questions on the Gospel of Mark. So it gets a person right into the Word, and we know that uh, God promises that His Word will not re return to Him empty, but it will accomplish the purpose for which He sent it. So I will be back on March the 15th, that's two Fridays from now, and we're going to do a training in the evening, probably from about uh, 7 or 7.30 to about 9 or 9.30. So in the meantime, I'd just like to thank uh, uh, your pastor, I'd like to thank Brad, and especially Reverend Watkins for allowing me this time to speak to you. So thank you very much, and God bless. So first of all, I'd like to apologize to Pastor Watkins for inviting him in the coldest, <laughs> I think, the day we had. This is n not normally this cold. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, our main speaker tonight is uh, Pastor Eric Watkins. He is um, a minister of the Covenant Presbyterian Church in St. Augustine. Augustine, Florida. He's been a minister of the Orthodox Presbyterian Churches since 2001. He's been involved with church plantings, which are establishing new congregations in new areas. We are thankful he took the time out of his busy schedule to talk with us tonight. He's uh, very passionate about his great commission that Jesus gave him, making disciples of all nations and teaching them what God has commanded through his word. It is our hope that we will all share the same passion. So please welcome... Pastor Eric Watkins. <clears throat> Good evening. Good. That was a pulse check. <laughs> it's a privilege to be here. And I should uh, just say a couple of preliminary things here before we, before we get into the, the lectures. Uh, there are two of them. Uh, first of all, I'm here with my 12-year-old daughter, Kira. Kira, where are you at? Over here, wishing her dad would not do things like this. <clears throat> but I'm just way too happy and proud of a dad not to. So uh, this is a working vacation in the sense that I'm, I'm working, I'm standing in front of people and doing something I love 
uh, very much. At the same time, uh, this is also a daddy-daughter trip. Uh, maybe the last we'll take before she turns 13. So while I, while I still know a few things, uh, we thought we'd make an adventure, and I really appreciate you turning everything white and beautiful outside for us. Uh, we got in late last night. It was so cold, I wondered if it were real. <clears throat> and I, I think this is the farthest north I've ever been in my life, uh, and, and maybe the coldest. And to hear some of you describe today as a warm day, I found a little bit of comic relief in that. Um, <clears throat> but it is what it is. Uh, I live in, uh, now let's, we need to clear up a couple of things. Where's the, the gentleman that was just speaking? Where'd he go? Yeah, there you are. Don't get away. You stay close. Um, so we need to clarify uh, where I live. Where I live is St. Augustine. St. Augustine is the guy who is now with the Lord. So if you get nothing out of the lecture tonight, you can finally resolve one mystery. Is it St. Augustine or St. Augustine? Uh, in a certain sense, the answer is yes. Uh, the place is St. Augustine. The person is St. Augustine. And that's my story. I'm sticking to it. Uh, if you'd ever like to come and visit, I would be very happy to have you. We live three miles from the Atlantic Ocean. We keep a stack of surfboards in uh, our garage. And it's been my great pleasure to put a number of Canadian reform people actually on surfboards. Perhaps my favorite is Ted Van Ralty. <laughs> and I think he has relatives in this church, doesn't he? Yeah, I think there's, oh, everybody has a relative in one of these churches, right? Yeah, so uh, some, uh, maybe two years ago, he and his family were down in our area and uh, we got the whole family out for, this thing's not quite cooperating yet. Uh, surf lessons, and then I had the privilege of giving lectures at the uh, seminary conference, and my closing slide was actually a picture of Ted Van Ralty dropping in on this 50-foot wave. <laughs> well, it wasn't actually him, but when I said I was about to flash a picture of him up there uh, on the overhead, you should have seen his face turn red. It was really a fantastic moment. <clears throat> and then he was the one to evaluate my speech afterward, so it was fair come upon us after that. Well, I'd like to ask you, if you don't mind, open up in your Bibles one more time and to turn back to the book of Joshua. That's where I'd like to begin my first uh, lecture. And I'm going to read Joshua chapter 1, verses 8 through 9. You know this text, but let's hear it again. This is God's word. Let's hear it carefully. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. This morning I had the privilege of talking to some of your covenant kids and a few covenant parents about uh, the idea of being uh, in Christ, in his church, in the family of God, and the reality uh, that God uh, in Jesus Christ is not only a sweet savior, but in the father, he's also an adopting father. And part of his prerogative and mission in the world, uh, what we often refer to as the Great Commission, is also his plan to bring in many more sons and daughters into the kingdom of God. Uh, my uh, four children are all adopted. I love adoption. Uh, we're a strongly pro-life, pro-adoption kind of family. And I love to think in those categories. 
Uh, what I want to talk about tonight, a lot of things I want to do, in fact, let me give you just the overview. What are you supposed to do? Tell them what you're going to say, say it, and tell them what you said. That's my outline. That's it. That's all I got. All right, so what we're going to do in the first uh, speech or lecture is I'm not actually going to make an argument for the idea that to be a Calvinist is to love evangelism. So just, we're going to take it head on and uh, do that uh, with the Bible and with some uh, quotes from Calvin, uh, a couple of other uh, favorite uh, authors of mine, and uh, just talk about the identity of the church, what it means to be reformed, Calvinistic, and how evangelism is bound up uh, in the heart of that identity. And the second speech uh, will be just extremely light and practical, and we're going to talk about how we do evangelism together as a church, and the title of that speech is Building a Culture of Evangelism. Uh, so that's going to be the layout, and then at the end, uh, we're going to have a little time for questions and answers, and I would encourage you to go ahead and think about your questions. Uh, if you have uh, really, really good questions, feel free to ask them. Uh, if you have really mean, nasty questions, feel free to ask somebody else. <laughs> All right, so hopefully we'll have a bunch of good questions here at the end. Um, and let me say, as we get going, uh, it's a privilege for me to be here. It's a great gesture of trust that your pastor and elders, this board, uh, would let a total stranger from Florida come up. Uh, I'm sure many of you have thought uh, what is often I, I perceived for me when people come and visit our church. We get a lot of Canadian uh, snowbirds or people passing through. <clears throat> the way our church is set up, so <clears throat> our pulpit's here. There's a door. leads out the side. Just before service, I pray with my elders, and then we walk over, and we come in together, and we look like a, I don't know, like a wrestling team or something, like this motley crew of, of guys coming in, and they go that way, and I go to the pulpit and sit down, and inevitably, uh, I'll see a visiting couple, and the one will lean over to the other and say, my same feeling every Sunday. Yeah, by God's grace, uh, it's me. Here I am. So I'm going to begin this with a, uh, a number of, lec of, of quotations that will be peppered uh, throughout my speech. And let me just go ahead and say here, just for the sake of academic integrity, that I'm borrowing some quotes from uh, Frank James uh, in a lecture he gave on the Calvin I Never Knew, really wonderful lecture, uh, some stuff from uh, Herman Zelderhaus, you've probably heard of him, um, uh, from Philip Edgecombe Hughes, and then also an author named uh, Wilcox. Uh, so instead of just referencing these guys all the way through, I'll just tell you I'm borrowing different quotations here and there, and then an absolute ton of things from uh, John Calvin himself. And what I really want to try to get to the heart of is this question, is it consistent with being Reformed and Calvinistic to have a genuine heart for evangelism? Thank you. You may stay. <clears throat> the rest of you are in a questionable covenant of works. So, but, but why do we even have to ask the question, right? I mean, just, just the fact that that's a real question should alert us to the reality that somehow, some way, in the way that we've talked about what it means to be Reformed and Calvinistic, somehow in the history of uh, the way Calvinists have done things like church or mission or other words, uh, we've earned an, a reputation that's not always been the best. And we just need to own that. We need to acknowledge that. Maybe in certain places, repent of that. Uh, but we need to acknowledge that it's true that Calvinists are not always perceived as being strongly committed to evangelism. And to that, I simply say that's too bad, in a certain sense, shame on us. Uh, we can do better, and we ought to want to do better. 
Uh, there are reputations that we have earned. Maybe some of them are unfair. But even Calvin himself is referred to in terms that are as colorful uh, as they are incendiary. That is to say, mean with a little bit of fire attached. So Will Durant, the famous historian, said this about John Calvin. We shall always find it hard to love the man John Calvin who darkened the human soul with the most absurd and blasphemous conception of God in all the long and honored history of nonsense. Now, I love great wordsmithing like that. But on the other hand, what's he saying about someone we hold so dear, right? That in all the long and honored history of nonsense, uh, we will always find it hard to love this guy, Calvin, uh, who darkened the human soul with a blasphemous and absurd conception about God. And here's a conception that God is sovereign in salvation. That's the offense. And because God is sovereign in salvation, somehow that seems to suggest that we aren't going to do evangelism and that uh, we're not just going to care a whole lot. Oscar Fitzer, a Freudian psychologist, says, uh, it is a fact that Calvin's own character was compulsive and neurotic and that he transformed the God of love as Jesus taught, into a God of wrath and hate. I'd love to know how a psychologist in the 50s knew anything about Calvin's personality. Not quite sure how he made that time jump. But either way, uh, that his idea of transforming the God of love into a God of wrath and hate, uh, that, those are fighting words, as they put it where I come from. The last one, this is my personal favorite Jimmy Swaggart. When's the last time you heard a Jimmy Swaggart quote in this church? <laughs> or from an Orthodox Presbyterian minister? Probably not too many of them floating around, but here comes one. Okay, so Jimmy Qu Swaggart said this, Calvin, I believe, this is fantastic, Calvin, I believe, has caused untold millions of souls to be damned. I didn't know a person could do that. I, I didn't know this guy could damn that guy to hell. Again, it's a, it's a pretty, it's almost laughable and ridiculous. And at the same time, you know, behind every caricature is something somebody thinks is real. That's why they draw the caricature that way. So what is uh, the character? What is the perception? Uh, well, somehow we've been perceived as cultivating a perception of God that is cold, disheartened, uh, and disinterested. And then as regards evangelism, the thought is God's sovereign and I've got other stuff to do. So why bother, right? And what I'd like to suggest is not only uh, is that not fair historically, but it's really not uh, the John Calvin that you and I ought to know, love, and cherish, because the John Calvin that you and I know as the one who wrote these great theological books and the institutes and all those wonderful sermons and commentaries and fantastic things uh, is also someone that was remarkably and personally committed to the enterprise of evangelism. In fact, I'll go so far as to say, if you don't see John Calvin as an evangelist, you don't know John Calvin. You may know a John Calvin that has been depicted to you in a certain way, but you don't know uh, the real John Calvin, and it might actually uh, be helpful to let some others uh, <clears throat> give some reflection on it. Uh, so Calvin uh, himself, in my view, was quite a committed evangelist. In fact, if you go back and you look at a lot of the way that he spent his life, he was remarkably committed to the work of evangelism. Calvin, as you know, uh, was this you know, quiet, somewhat retiring personality. 
uh, who had a desire to go and just drink nice wine in the hills of France. Can't blame him for that. That sounds pretty good to me, right? And then in the middle of uh, the stage of persecution and this dark uh, shadow of what would become the Protestant Reformation, uh, there were people, this little fiery redheaded guy that said to Calvin, you're called to this. You can't go just drink your wine and read your books. Uh, The church needs you. Persecution is on. Uh, The church is vulnerable and you are gifted and skilled to enter into this fray. You got to do it. You're either going to hell or you're going to help. You pick. Nice way to sum it up. And Calvin actually entered into this as someone who on the one hand was reluctant and at the same time uh, recognized, okay, this is the call of God. Uh, There's wonderful material written by a man named Charles de Esperville, a pastor uh, of that season, who wrote uh, to people who were serving as missionaries, uh, who wrote to pastors who were under persecution, who himself actually came alongside people during things like the plague and other seasons and shared and preached the gospel to them. And do you know who Charles de Esperville is? It's always one in the room. Here's my token Calvin nerd. Come on. It's okay. Show your t-shirt. It's John Calvin, who actually, as did many pastors in this time and authors, wrote under a pseudonym for the sake of not only protecting himself and his family, but even protecting uh, those in his church as well. So, excuse me. When you think about Calvin, what do you think about him? What comes to your mind? Uh, Do you picture this theological mountain who retreats uh, from the front lines? Do you think of someone who just writes these lofty things about God but never really gets his hands dirty? Well, that's that's what I'd like to dispel. Uh, Calvin was a working machine. You know that about him. He spent uh, many tireless days uh, laboring over things that he would write. But when you look at the stuff that he wrote, uh, like the Institutes, you know how those began? Those began actually as like tracts, letters explaining to people that were still like coming out of the darkness of Rome and Roman Catholic theology and trying to understand the gospel clearly. That's how that got started. Versions of them were dedicated to kings who hated the Protestant Reformation, and Calvin did this simply trying to persuade them that they weren't trying to turn the world upside down. They were trying to turn the church right side up and to make it think biblically. One of my favorite little uh, portraits of Calvin in my mind is that when the plague came through his area, uh, there were people in, uh, the, in the leadership there in Geneva that wanted to protect Calvin. And so they said, you know, you are too important to go and visit people with the plague. You might get the plague. And if you just think about the way that disease worked, you'd have bodies lined up beside bodies in a room where people are at graduating stages of death uh, just kind of stacked up and shuffled around in the order and, and rats and nastiness and horrible conditions uh, dying right and left. And they told Calvin, don't you dare go down there uh, because we need you for this reformation thing. And his response to that was wonderful. What kind of shepherd would I be if I wouldn't go and visit the most broken of the sheep? And so he would step over dead bodies to get to the live ones and preach the gospel to them. Now you and I will barely go talk to our neighbors Right? And, and here's John Calvin, this great theologian, if that's really the right way to talk about him, uh, who is stepping over dead bodies to get to the live ones in time to tell them about Jesus or to comfort uh, people that are already in the faith uh, with the gospel, right? Their only hope 
literally in the face of life and also in death. The place where he worked and trained, often referred to as the company at Geneva, was really like a missionary training school that had quite a number, hundreds of people, men that were there training, and then when a wave of persecution came and hit, it went down to like almost nothing. And into that, Calvin stepped in and said, this needs to be rebuilt, why? Uh, Because he, like others, standing on the shoulder of Luther and others, believed that the only way the church was going to rebound from this dark cloud uh, that set the stage for the Protestant Reformation would be through faithful preaching. In fact, the only hope for the church that there was was faithful preaching and the proclaiming of the gospel, not just to the baptized, but to the lost. And so this company formed there in Geneva that was like a seminary for training was not only training pastors, it was training people even as missionaries. Some of them went uh, to really crazy places like Brazil. Who would ever want to go there? Right? So Calvin's hands got pretty dirty, not just uh, in the work of training people uh, who would go out there and do the work of sharing the gospel, right? Uh, Missionaries or pastor evangelists locally, he himself did it. And I think we do him a historical disservice to imagine him as anything other than a practical evangelist, a guy uh, that actually had a heart for it, that was driven by a theology for it, that was manifest in a life for it. To be John Calvin was to be an evangelist. To be John Calvin and believe in the sovereignty of God was to believe that God was so sovereign, he was going to use means. And the primary means is his pulpit, but he also uses secondary means. He uses people out in the warp and woof of life, and Calvin wholeheartedly was not only committed to that, uh, he actually practiced it, and he said things like this, we must carry forward among the heathen the preaching which the apostles began. When they formed this company at Geneva, uh, they expressed it uh, this way. Its purpose was to maintain, we maintain and are persuaded that the doctrine which they, that is this company, preach is of God and it leads to him being duly and purely served that the grace which God has given us through our Lord Jesus Christ should be known as befits it. Now catch this part. This is the most important And that all people should know the right way of salvation in order to attain it. Thus, it is impossible that we should not desire this doctrine to be disseminated everywhere to everybody. Right? So why did Calvin go to this place? Why was this place formed? What did he give his life to? It was not only preaching the gospel, which he did literally up to the day that he died, to the very day that he died, but to training of those who would go out and who would do it as well. Most people who joined the Reformed Church in this time when Calvin was laboring did so in response to the preached word, and many of them died. Many of them died not simply of things like the plague. Many of them died of persecution. Uh, One of the best hymns, most time-tested hymns that the church sings is A Mighty Fortress, right? And I'm sure, or I'm wondering, do you know the the backstory there of a mighty fortress? Luther, uh, who, like Calvin, was not only a preacher, but a trainer of preachers, and he wrote that song, A Mighty Fortress, the day he heard that two young men whom he had discipled had been martyred for the faith. 
two men that he counted like sons, had been martyred for the faith, and then he sits down and he pens the words to that song, and towards the end of it has that splendid line, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, his kingdom is forever. <clears throat> Somehow, some way over time, the Reformed faith got comfortable. But it didn't start that way. Somehow, some way over time, the Reformed faith got cozy, snoozic, right? But it didn't start that. Yeah, I know 10 Dutch words, so if you want to know, I can tell them all real quickly and then we'll be done. Right? Uh, somehow, some way over the Reformed faith, uh, over time, the Reformed faith got isolated. But what I'm standing here to say is it didn't start that way, okay? Uh, history can have a way of cooling things over time, but when the Reformation began, it began with a passion, a fire for reaching the lost. That was the whole point. That's what it meant to be reformed. Calvin never met a Calvinist who did not believe that the sovereignty of God implied reaching people for Christ, right? Uh, because Calvin never met a Calvinist. Never even heard the phrase. You'd probably find it a bit puzzling that we have this whole theological thing attached to his name, but that's a different subject. Uh, <clears throat> Calvin, time always escapes me. It's wonderful. What I love about your church is I can't see a clock anywhere. <clears throat> that's good news and bad news. Because <laughs> I told the kids earlier today, I have a very post, I, I did a lot of study in postmodernism, preaching Christ in the Old Testament in a postmodern context. That was what I did my degree on. And I'm very postmodern in some ways, particularly with time. So it feels like an hour to you. It may only feel like 15 minutes to me. And we'll have to kind of sort that out. <clears throat> Calvin, as you know, uh, did not have biological children. He married a woman who was a widow uh, who had, had children uh, before. And they conceived one child together who died in infancy. <clears throat> and this is horrible, but it's true. Uh, at that time, you know, Calvin went through phases, seasons in his relationship with the church where the church was really nice to him. And then they went through phases where the church was really mean to him and chased him out of town or named their dogs after him. That's really the case. They would name their dogs after, after their pastor <clears throat> as a way of like spitting when they said his name. And so when he lost his one child, uh, with this woman who he married and was with for nine years, I believe. Uh, when that child died, there were people who mocked him. God's on you. It's judgment. My wife and I were never able to have children naturally. Things like that kind of get to me, make me a little bit uh, irritated. Do you feel a little sting there? Can you imagine your church mocking the pastor, lost a child, saying this is God's judgment on you? Calvin's response was fantastic, and it sets up a little like, kind of application here. Calvin's response that was fantastic. He said, uh, I would rather have a hundred children in the, in the faith than one in the flesh. And what did God do? He gave Calvin hundreds upon hundreds, you could say thousands, maybe even millions of spiritual children, those who claim the mantle of John Calvin for theological reasons, and uh, those people are in this room, right? If you identify with the things that I'm saying uh, about John Calvin theologically, if you believe in the sovereignty of God and the five points of Calvinism, the doctrine of the church, and all those great things that we hail from him, 
uh, and you identify as Calvinist, that makes you part of his children. But what I want to nudge then just a little bit is uh, what about his zeal for the gospel? What about his passion for reaching the lost? What about his willingness to step over dead bodies to tell people who were looking into the eyes of death that if they turned to this Jesus by faith, soon they would close their eyes in this world and open them in the world to come and see the eyes of God in peace, right? So here's my question. Where are Calvin's children? Where are Calvin's children today who not only echo these five points and other wonderful things, but a real heart for the gospel, uh, a real heart for mission? Well, I want to move on and just uh, say a couple other things uh, unrelated to Calvin himself. But before, just to summarize, uh, from my point of view, and you can disagree with me, that's fine. Uh, You're free to... You're free to be wrong, and I'm free to go home. (laughs) So either way, we could have a nice, honest, charitable conversation. Uh, But what I want to say in short is that it's completely wrong-headed to think that Calvinism implies a disinterest in reaching the lost with the gospel. To be a Calvinist and to be reformed is to be committed to reaching the lost for the gospel and any sort of indifferentism towards that is not only unbiblical, it's unfair to Calvin himself. So maybe if we don't think that the work of the church is to go out and reach people for Christ, maybe we should drop the Calvinistic identity thing and come up with a different phrase. Because the John Calvin of history believed in it, and anyone claiming to be his children ought to be faithful to that identity as well. <clears throat> so our church... Uh, Orthodox Presbyterian Church has some things kind of in common with uh, with yours. Uh, we started in 1936. Uh, you had your fry mocking in Holland in 1944. That's where I studied, did my PhD work over there. So I've read a good bit of your ancestry. It's always a fun thing, by the way, to come over or up <clears throat> and hang around some of the folks in the Canref or you know over there. I have no Dutch in me <clears throat> at all, but I love the apple pie. <laughs> all about the apple pie. Okay. My son's middle name is Voss. Does that make me kind of a little bit Dutch? <clears throat> None. Uh, but I very much enjoyed getting to know the family story. And in the next lecture, when I talk about building a culture of evangelism, uh, which if I have five friends left that come back for that, we should have a really nice time. Um, <clears throat> we're going to talk about some of the things that may be obstacles to that. But one of the things uh, that I've appreciated <clears throat> in studying uh, your history is this commitment to the idea of truth and uh, the true church. And uh, that's also an obstacle in some ways, but we're going to get to that in just a little while. Our denomination had a very similar uh, start. We came out of a situation that we perceived as being liberal and unhealthy that began in the 1920s. Uh, It came to a head in the 1930s. And when you look at the history of the OPC, uh, it was driven largely by a sense that the gospel wasn't being preached and somebody needed to do it. And by the way, that's not at odds with being reformed and Calvinistic. It's a consequence of being reformed and Calvinistic. It's because we believe in the sovereignty of God. It's because we believe in the church. It's because we believe in the ordinary means of grace uh, that we ought to believe uh, that this is the work of the church and that which God has called us all to. In 1918, in the context of uh, the World War, 
uh, Machen said this, J. Gresham Machen, our version of a Kloss Gilder. Uh, I talked a long time uh, to one fellow in particular who's been going through agony of soul in his effort to find peace with God, and it made me think of Pilgrim's Progress. Well, I never before knew what the preaching of the gospel was until that day when sharing the gospel with that young man. Uh, and he said, there was very little of myself in it, but here's a great line. But the grace of God still finds an answer in the human heart. And that's what I want to ask. Do you believe that the grace of God is still finding an answer in the human heart? That not only are people lost in sin and depravity and blindness, but that God's light, the light of the gospel, can still penetrate the human heart. Do you actually believe that? Because if you believe that, we have to act on the things that we believe. You can't just say it like in an intellectual sense and back off. We have to actually believe that God is going to do something with it, okay? Uh, Machen suggested, and I think this is actually uh, a potent word for today. Machen suggested that the real attack on the church, the real threat to the church, is not by fire and swords, threats of bonds, uh, threats of bonds or death, but friendly words, attack from within, atrophy, and indifference. What do you think? Atrophy and indifference. Atrophy means, after a while, you know, we just kind <clears> of <throat> lose our momentum, right? You roll a ball down the floor, and after a while, its momentum begins to atrophy, as it finds a comfortable resting place. The Reformation, I'm trying to argue, uh, began with an awful lot of evangelistic, powerful momentum, and yet uh, somehow in our reformed identity and ideology, we eventually found a resting place and atrophy began to set in. So I'm pushing a little bit. Indifference, Machen said, is that the church would just look at the world and say, ah, to hell with them. God's sovereign. If he wants them, he'll get them. What does that have to do with me? Well, it has a whole lot to do with you because, and uh, the first uh, gentleman that spoke and made the introduction, he read from this little thing called the Great Commission where Jesus said, you know, I have a plan for you. And it doesn't involve atrophy. And it, it doesn't involve indifference but it might involve persecution. But until I come back, I'm not only seeking and saving through my church, I'm rescuing people into my church, and, and they're going to come in. And they're going to come in uh, not simply the old-fashioned way, you know what I mean, right? They're going to come in the other old-fashioned way. It's through the Great Commission. That's how this works. That's how it works until the very end of the age. A uh, great little line here uh, from Machen, and I, I really should look at my clock. I'm completely clueless where we're at time-wise. Where's Laurel? Laurel, straighten me out. <laughs> Let me ask somebody else. <laughs> All right, you're a good man. No, no, I'm gonna, listen, she's, she's the one who's in charge of like everything that I'm doing here this week, so I'm gonna happily obey. All right, so why don't we have a great idea. Why don't we take a coffee break, and I will 
and we will come back in, tell me what to say, 15 minutes? Okay, but he said it's going to be 20, so I want 15 minutes we try to get back here. We're really just getting warmed up. Okay, all right, so I apologize for not being a better steward of our time. I get a little excited, and I don't pay attention to my watch, so let's take a 15-minute break, and then we will come back. Thank you. I got my five back. Yes, I'm delighted that not only uh, did you come, well, I'm, I'm surprised you came back. That's the first most obvious thing, but even like punctually, that's actually pretty good. And I didn't have to say anything to quiet you down. You're far more cooperative than the church I serve. Sorry? Oh, well, that's okay. It wasn't my Vulcan mind meld. Right, okay, well, let's, uh, let's just jump right into the next uh, <clears throat> piece of things, and that is going to be talking about building a culture of evangelism, and I'd like you to open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4. 